Welcome to episode 122 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I'm Zeb, and with me today are the superstars of podcasting. Noah, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Ryan, how's it going? I'm doing awesome. And Michael, how have you been? Stupendous. Wow. Even stupendous. We have a special guest on our show this week, but before we get into the interview, let's find out how everyone's week has been. Michael, what have you been up to? I have been uh, testing a lot of uh, different distros. I haven't, I told last week I was going to do some distro hopping, and I have done some hopping. I haven't really settled on anything yet, but currently I have in the mix of possibilities uh, is OpenSUSE, uh, the the Gecko Linux fork of OpenSUSE, uh, NixOS, Arch, and some other, like this one that's really interesting called Nitrix, which is a, it's a, it's a plasma-based naturally uh, distribution, and it's focused heavily on app images, and they're very, also very um, active on social media, where they like feature different app images, and they're promoting different applications. It's a really good way to find applications if you're interested, um, or as far as app images goes, uh, and that kind of stuff is just, I haven't really picked which one I want, but that's the list right now. But I think it's fascinating that you, after all of these years, for those who may not know, have been basically on one distro for since I've known you. Since I've known you, you've been on Kubuntu or Neon. Yeah, those were the two. Basically, Neon and Kubuntu at the same time yeah. for like five years or it's so. It's so amazing yeah. for me to see you grow up finally and try <laughs> something different. <laughs> to grow up. Thanks. Thanks. Our little boy's getting old. I know. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so, I'm so happy. So, Dad, how has your week been? <laughs> My week has been incredible. I got my video out on FreeNAS, which has really, people really like it, which I was surprised. And probably because I said right at the beginning, so all of you know, I'm a complete noob and this is just how I've set it stuff up. So I set the, the president that don't judge me on this, but I got that video out there. I, it looks like a lot of people are interested in trying to get a FreeNAS server set up now after doing that. So that is very cool for me to see. Um, and I'm enjoying that a ton. So I have a huge thanks to Noah for that, for not only helping me with the um, hardware that I needed to get, uh, but also being there to support if I messed anything up, knowing that you're there, that makes a big difference. So I appreciate that. Um, and it's running beautifully, man. Cool. So apart from providing uh, personal support for Ryan, what have you been up to, Noah? I, yeah, I got my Fedora workstation up to date, so I can, I can now say that I have used every version of Fedora from Fedora Core 1 all the way up to current on my home workstation. And uh, that continues to be true. And I follow my own process of just waiting a little bit after Fedora comes out. And lo and behold, no problems whatsoever. Absolutely stunning release. Absolutely fantastic software. Continues to be, I think, one of the best desktop distributions out there. So it's interesting you say that, Noah, because I pinged you in the middle of the week and I was like, oh, you're right. Yeah, that's right. Because I I, I had issues, if you remember, on the prior episode where there were just small stuff going on with Fedora 30 and you were like, listen, wait a week. That's my always wait a week. And so that was one week later I went after and installed and everything was everything I had an issue with was fixed at that point. So you're advice is perfect if you're going to switch to the next version wait one week then switch you're good to go i'm glad to yeah. learn that after 30 some versions of fedora i've i've uh, i finally nailed you, down the, yeah, you figured <laughs> I've, out got, the magic. I've got a, i've got the i've got the process down to a fine science absolutely hey, we've got some email to get to guys uh 
Emailer writes in and says, hey, DL Gents, to start off, thank you so much for putting on a great show. It's great to have different perspectives in every one show that can entertain and inform. I know that you guys kid about filthy dual booters, and that's light nature jabbing. Finally got me to re-Linuxify my life. Yes. I have my old laptop running Zubuntu, but left Windows 10 on my desktop for simplicity's sake. My son and I play Minecraft, and I didn't want to lose our saved worlds. Long story short, I researched and found out how easy it is to move Minecraft saves to Linux. I installed Zubuntu on my desktop and it's all been tickety-boo since then. I no longer <laughs> built to do a boot like Michael and I've been able to separate myself <laughs> away from him. I still have to use Windows at work but have been able to deploy some Linux machines with DHCP and a wiki. In fact, I was able to get help in Noah's Telegram group and deploying the wiki. We also have two FreeNAS systems. I just ordered hard drives to build a third. Thanks so much for a great show. Even when it's negative, it makes a positive impact. Paul. Yeah, and it's, it says P.S. Also, whatever Noah just said, hashtag fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this because we had to we did a segment for a while because Michael was getting beat up pretty bad out there about the jabs on filthy dual booting that we made jokes Which he about. doesn't do. And, but the whole point of the filthy dual booting joke was to encourage people to do just this. Like, hey, if we're saying Linux is the greatest thing out there. Why can't you just run Linux full-time prim- as your primary system? Now, there are some cases, obviously, where that's not possible. Uh, your work may require certain things, whatnot, but why not try? And I love this email because this individual did that, and they, have, they were able to overcome any of the issues that they thought may have existed and realized the solution was right there for them, the Minecraft saves and everything being able to move to Linux. Also chose Ubuntu, which is great because XFCE, so you're a winner there. And the fact that you made fun of Michael, um, well, you didn't, but Noah made it like you did in the email is even better because always making fun of Michael is going to guarantee your email gets read on the show. Okay, let's not put that out there in the wild. But I, I am I, even though that this uh, this weird dual booting thing is uh, is a is a thing at this point, and it's got a mind of its own. Really, I, the end result is great because we get we get emails like this. Let it, like people are actually like taking the time to you know see if they can adjust and if they can switch over completely, and if they and then taking the time to learn out how to do that. So that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So this is why we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send in your favorite Linux software or tip and trick. We'd love to know what tools make your Linux experience amazing. Is there perhaps a specific topic topic, topic, topic you want us to cover other than filthy dual booting? Well, let us know and send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So now we have in store for you a very special guest who's never been before on the show on Destination Linux. So let's get right into that. So as mentioned earlier, we have a guest with us today. We have Mr. Richard Brown, who is the OpenSUSE chairman. He's a Linux engineer and a self-proclaimed geek. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Excellent. Um, We're excited to have you on the show. um, And this is your first appearance of Destination Linux. And hopefully if we don't muck it up too much, you'll agree to come back again when you've got some exciting news for us. So let's get right into the interview and we have a gauntlet of questions to ask you. Um, so let's get started. Richard, good to see you again. Uh, I guess the first thing we want to just kind of start out with is tell us your Linux story. Tell us how you got started in Linux. A lot of us came over to Linux from another operating system or were involved in some sort of IT sphere before that. Was that was it that way for you? And if so, uh, 
was it Seuss that you got started with? Actually, it was Slackware. So way, way back when, like when I was in school, I was one of those really annoying students that was like constantly hacking into the IT systems there. Nice. <laughs> um, and, and my teacher kind of gave me the point, the, the job at one point of like, okay, you're going to get kicked out of the school unless you fix everything you're breaking. So that was kind of like my first sysadmin gig. Um, and then I ended up getting paid for it. So it really was my first sysadmin gig. They were using Novell. Um, about, and this is about the same time as uh, Novell bought Sousa. So I'd already been kind of messing around with Slackware then. Then Novell bought Sousa. So that, okay, this this other stuff really, you know, it's not just me playing around now. Like this is this is what's going to get me a job going forward. So started with Sousa there. Got my first job out after school. Actually, yeah doing Sousa Novell stuff and kind of been hooked on the whole yeah Sousa side of things ever since then. That's awesome. You got to grow up basically then your first gig, your first job and everything has been Sousa this entire time really. Pretty much. Yeah. That's amazing. How, yeah. how long ago was that Richard? Oh, 20 years ago now, I guess. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. So because it was it was more Novell first. I was doing a lot of like what was OES Linux with uh, the high availability stuff and, and like so that was kind of you know SUSE was there underneath, but it was a lot of the Novell stuff on top. And then over time, like less of the Novell, more of the SUSE side of things. And I got involved in Open SUSE around about that time as well. That's how they dragged me in. <laughs> nice. So uh, you've been around OpenSUSE for you know quite a while, and you've held many positions between the time of becoming chairman and the time of starting. Um, what are some of the highlights of your journey that led you to this point? Oh wow! Um, the the one highlight that I go back to all the time because like I, I mean I started initially like as a tester, just messing around, filing bugs, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, it was really the the OpenSUSE conference in twenty eleven. So. Seven years, uh, eight years ago now. Um, actually, in Nuremberg. So the, the one we're having next week is is you know, almost in the same venue. Um, that that's when I, I I really got hooked into OpenSUSE. Like I was this this shy, quiet, kind of reserved guy, not really that involved in the community. Turned up to kind of just sort of see what's going on. Yeah, really, just like fell in love with the crowd. Before I knew it, they were throwing huge amounts of responsibility my way, and I ended up with like you know being responsible for like being the ambassador in the UK and helping with events and just yeah, generally getting myself involved in way too many different parts of the project. And it's all kind of developed from there. So yeah, OSC 11, I guess would be sort of the biggest highlight. It's all kind of, all kind of carried on from then. Okay, nice. Sounds good. So, so this question is going to ask you to, to look back in time and then bring us a little bit forward in time. So what contributions uh, as the chairman are you most proud of? And what changes are you still looking to make? Oh, well, that's a fun one. So the the, the role of the chairman is a weird one in OpenSUSE because um, it, it's not it's not like a sort of the Debian project lead or kind of the Fedora. Um, I forgot the Matthew's term there. Um, it, the, the, the chairman is just one role on the OpenSUSE board. Uh, and I kind of have to explain the board as whole well to make my bit fit in. Um, the way the project works is, is we're very much a, a duocracy. You know, those that do decide, and we want decisions to be as close as possible to the contribution. Um, so we don't have steering committees, we don't have project managers, we don't have any, any of that crafted. You know, you do your stuff, you submit it, gets in, and there's there's gatekeepers, but you know, anyone can be those gatekeepers, etc. With that kind of liberal 
um, anarchistic way, you know, there's bound to be a case where different groups of contributors or different individual contributors, you know, bump up into each other. You know, one person wants this, one person wants that. You know, how do you solve that conflict? Um, and, you know, we have policies and guidelines and codes of conduct to, to help with that. But at some point, you know, people just bump up against each other. So you need sort of a, a, a uh, a mediation body, a decision maker of last resort, that kind of thing. So we have the Open SUSE board for that. It's a six-person body, five of them elected by the community. Uh, no more than two can be um, from the same employer. So you know we have strict corporate controls there. So like SUSE can't have more than two. Uh, employees mm -hmm. there but SUSE do have the privilege being the, the primary sponsor of the project of, of electing its chairman um, so I'm I'm there as a regular board member sort of with the added responsibility of being sort of the formal conduit between the main sponsor and, and the project um, so so as chairman I, I yeah I, I keep things on the right track I, I you know make sure that OpenSUSE is you know, visible and, and active but um, and I contribute as well but I don't consider those contributions as my chairman stuff i'm just a contributor who yeah has all this extra fun stuff too um so i mean the one i guess the one thing i can say which i kind of really got involved in because it was special um was the the idea that everybody now knows is open susa leap because nice. that that started internally it's well the, a lot of we had two competing tracks of thought in the community we had a kind of uh a fatigue for doing the old-fashioned release you know we were doing a release very much like fedora or ubuntu of sort of six months or nine months or <laughs> whenever we could get it out um of, of our own code base releasing regularly um and the idea of that being the the base system for you know the enterprise product for susan um, but the community was having a harder and harder time doing that just there wasn't much uh, uh attraction to it because a lot of the enthusiasm was going into tumbleweed ironic release so on that side, on the flip side at SUSE, internally we were talking about how do we get more people using the SLEE code base. Um, and you know, there was ideas bouncing around, you know, oh, maybe we could have something like CentOS, but you know, SUSE wanted to do something better than that. Um, so all these kind of ideas bounced around. I kind of got myself in the middle of that. And uh, yeah, bringing these two strands together, presenting the idea um, a couple of years ago now of effectively SUSE opening up all of their SLEE code base straight into the build system that OpenSUSE uses and having OpenSUSE build a derivative of SLEE while SUSE is still developing SLEE. So it's not like mm -hmm. CentOS where it's, you know, one happens and then the other, you know, we do both in parallel at the same time without this kind of any forced restrictions when it comes to sort of patch latencies or um, content of the community version. So, you know, OpenSUSE can expand Leap to be more than just a one-to-one -one copy of Slee, but at the top there's Slee in there. Um, yeah, all of all of those ideas kind of, yeah, I was the, the conduit for that and in all those meetings. Nice. And also, that was, that was fun. Is, uh, isn't Tumbleweed a part of that where the Tumbleweed stuff uh, goes to Slee after a certain amount of time? Yeah, well, well, that that kind of yeah, that kind of happened in parallel, which kind of lubricated this whole thing up. Is when SUSE were developing Slee twelve inside SUSE, we had this weird issue where, in some cases, the community version was too conservative for Slee. So we we had we had open SUSE thirteen two around about then, and there were some things that SUSE desperately wanted to have in Slee twelve that weren't in thirteen two because the community had kind of opted that it was you know a bit too risky, um, but they they were in factory, which was um, the Fedora's equivalent would be Rawhide um, or Debian Sid, um, which was which 
in, in about that same time became tumbleweed and we started adding testing to factory and only releasing it when the thing works. Um, so SUSE started pulling stuff straight from factory, straight from tumbleweed and throwing it straight into the enterprise code base with additional testing and additional integration, of course. Um, and, you know, the world didn't end. The product shipped on time. <laughs> every, everything went well. And, and that kind of opened things up. But SUSE was like, what? okay, this, this rolling release stuff, like, isn't as crazy as, you know, as it, it, it was. And that, so um, it, now that's become formal company policy. You can actually see it on, on SUSE's website where um, all of the SUSE enterprise products have to have their code in tumbleweed first or factory first. We still use that term in the context of SLEE. Um, so it has to be submitted there, gets into tumbleweed, and then can be adopted into SLEE afterwards. So it, it ends up where OpenSUSE is now simultaneously the upstream of SUSE because of Tumbleweed and the downstream of SUSE because of Leap. And the graph becomes it. I mean, that was a major change. And when you were talking about, I, I've basically grown up in corporate America. So I see how slow change can happen, especially when you take in situations, very experienced individuals, you put them in a room and you want to change something major in, in, you know, within the way that things are released or things are done. And in your story, it sounds, how do you guys deal with conflict in those situations? Because all of you have a ton of experience. You kind of know how you want things, but sometimes you've got to kind of break the mold and do something different. How do you convince people in well, that way? Yeah, well, the, I, I can give you two, two brief stories, I guess. So in the, in the case of Leap, um, which is a little bit different, but it kind of it fits in nicely because it explains the SUSE, open SUSE dynamic a bit. Um, because that was sort of six months of, of corporate SUSE being very reserved, internally thinking, you know, uh, figuring out what as a company they were willing to do, how far they were willing to go, et cetera. Um, so we had kind of all those meetings and, and there was there was lots of, of actually very high up business decisions around this because, you, know, you know, things like, you know, you don't want to be risking the revenue line stuff here. Right. So, yeah. you know, in some cases, you know, revenue streams were actually subtly shifted like months before anything was told to the community. So, you know, that couldn't be impacted and stuff. So, yeah, there was there was lots of moving around there. Um, but at the end of all of that, so when the company was kind of happy where it was, there was no formal the community must do this decision. Literally, I had a bunch of ideas and the company was like, okay. You go to that conference, you present them, we'll go with whatever they, they, the community decides. Wow, that's awesome. Which, which was absolutely awesome. The only, the only stipulation was that the project name we had internally, I, I wasn't allowed to use that because they didn't like the name. Like, they told me that like the day before the presentation. So <laughs> um, I did this presentation of like, yeah, the future's unwritten and slow, so is the title, the title of the slide deck. Um, but besides that, you know, it, it, it was yeah, totally down to the community, you know, Leap got its name from the community, the structure, where that line is between the community stuff and the enterprise stuff was was all like totally open to, to that. Um, and yeah, so that that's kind of how it works on a, on a corporate SUSE, open SUSE side of things. Inside open SUSE, we, we really do our best to have when there's those conflicts arising, you know, have have the people get around a table, talk it out, you know, come up with a reasonable compromise. Um, you know, and a lot of these technical issues, like that, you know, there's a lot of technical religion um, and and we're not a project which is is that declarative with it like if 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 you know if some people like kde the more than gnome the question for consumer typically becomes well how can we do both 
um, okay. and, and that kills a lot of arguments off nicely. Um, when all when all goes horribly wrong, and there's still some, you know, with the board, you know, they've been elected by the community, you know, they're trusted by the community. So, so when things get really sticky and really nasty, you know, those those conversations do end up with like just the board just you know making those awkward decisions and and you know almost universally the community accepts them and moves on and things are fine i mean we never like saying no to anybody but right yeah it happens Some, yeah it happens yeah <laughs> exactly no, I think that's really interesting look in there you mentioned about you know some people wanting kde some people wanting gnome I'm really curious to know, and I, when we ask this question, most people try to dodge it, and it's okay if you do, um, but what is your favorite desktop environment in OpenSUSE? I can't hide it. I'm a GNOME user. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm still technically on the GNOME team. I don't contribute as much as I used to, um, nice. but, but I, I've, I've been packaging GNOME stuff in OpenSUSE since at least 2011. Um, gotcha. So. Yeah. Do you have like a secondary favorite, or you just, I'm GNOME all the way, this is... I, I'm no more the way when it's something I'm going to be using for day to day. Right. I've got one or two like embedded devices. Like I've got a, a gaming, uh, like a retro gaming thing plugged into the back of my TV. That's running XFCE. Like just because mm-hmm. you know the, the machine can't handle no one. As long as you say XFCE, you're my best friend now. So we're good. Yeah. <laughs> just so as long as you've used it somewhere in the interview, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could get on your bad side really easily. I'm not sure I want to tell you that story. Though. No, no. <laughs> so just quickly interjecting here on the GNOME desktop side of things. Is OpenSUSE really close to the GNOME basic or do you work your magic on it? Uh, both, which is kind of fun. Um, so, so we're really close to GNOME upstream um, and we try and be very close to GNOME upstream. Um, and and typically, typically speaking, when when all when all is going well, um, we're, we're in Tumbleweed. We're like normally the first distribution to ship GNOME. Um, didn't happen this time because well, everything didn't work out according to plan. Um, but yeah, when it all goes nicely. But of course, SUSE are also using GNOME for sleep, and they have Factory First, and they're putting their magic there because they have a a very customized GNOME feel of of um, it's kind of a sort of hybrid of what used to be in like SLE eleven. So the old SLE customers to have like the bar down at the bottom and kind of gnome 2-esque stuff um and that all gets contributed to factory so you've, you've got the best of both worlds there mm-hmm. um and it, it's it's sometimes a little bit of attention because you know there's all this extra code that needs to be contributed upstream and kept clean and tidy um but that's that's a nice role that open gets to play because we get to kind of you know yeah, Suza has to stay honest with their stuff because otherwise they get left behind right one of the standout features of OpenSUSE is YAST. You talk to anybody that is a huge proponent of SUSE, and oftentimes they will bring up YAST. It's particularly inviting to system administrators that are maybe coming over from the Windows side. Can you tell us a little bit about the YAST tool and maybe some of the changes that have occurred over time and what you're looking to add uh, going forward? Yeah, well, I mean, YAST, yeah, I mean, yeah, YAST has been a huge part of OpenSUSE or SUSE since like the beginning. I think um, the first version of YAST was like, the first thing in the first version of, of Sleeve once Suda started making their own code base. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing we've been talking about for a while now is, you know, originally YAS was written in its own language. It's all in Ruby now, so it's much more easier for people to contribute to. Right. Um, there's been sort of huge amounts of, of code rewriting and, 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 uh, fun, uh, and 
pretty hefty sort of under the hood functional stuff. Um, like the main thing in like the Leap 15 release was an entirely new partition library. So we went from sort of lib storage to lib storage ng, which is like totally revolutionized how we can handle very, very complicated partitioning layouts, it's, it's in, especially from existing systems. So, you know, you get, you get some you know, horrific machine that's got like 20 different distributions on it and Windows and Multipath and iSCSI all at the same time. And like, so you can just like take one look at that. Like, okay, this is the best place to put my, my SUSE installation. You know, this is what I need to shrink. This is what I need to move. And then it can kind of handle all of that stuff really nicely. Um, so we've done a, in 15.1, um, I've actually, I did a bit of work myself there where we've tweaked a lot of the partition and layouts for the installer. Um, so we scale up and scale down based on the machine differently than we used to. Um, it's far more forgiving for people who are using BTFS snapshots and rollback. Um, so sometimes, you know, in, in the, the kind of extremely small and extremely large cases, we always got it right. And then like machines were like in between those two extremes, the, the old logic would occasionally like just, like give you like way too small a BTFS partition and then people would fill up their disk with snapshots and then everyone blames BTFS for filling up their disk. It's just, you know, we, there was a bad partition size. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's now we're much happier now with where that is um, and, and how that works. And in fact, we turn off the snapshotting now if things are smaller because we can do that now with the new, the new library. Um, things going forward with, with Yast, I mean, there's, there's always stuff. They actually have their own uh, blog posts and, and uh, regular feed because you know, they're working in a very agile way with, with sprints. I have to admit, I haven't read it in the last week or two because I've been busy. But they're always talking about what they're doing, where they're going, how that how that there. I've always just seen huge changes in Yast, and I'm the newest one in Linux, I think, out of everybody on this uh, panel. But um, I remember trying to use SUSE back in the day when I was first learning Linux, and then later have come back to it recently. And I just sat there in Yast in amazement, honestly, because I'm and I'm talking about the control center portion of of Yast within SUSE. And it, it's just, there's so many things you can control. And I know that's the idea right there, including setting up, you know, KVM virtual machines right there. And yes, all of your software uh, priorities for your repository, everything is handled, your firewall stuff. It's just, it's what I see in Yast is the concept so many other distros have tried to have that one place where everything's controlled that Yast is actually the only one, and I feel very comfortable in saying this, that actually has done it correctly, I feel like, from beginning to end. It is absolutely a gorgeous part of OpenSUSE. I think it's amazing. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it's organized well enough where you can actually find things. Exactly. Uh, KDE, think about that. Um, <laughs> but, like, so earlier you talked about uh, Leap 15.1, and that's coming out within a couple of days from the recording, and I'm pretty sure it'll be, like, the same day that we released this episode. Uh, tell us about the features that you're most excited about in this release. Oh, well, I've mentioned the, the partitioning arrangements, which, of course, I'm excited about because I did them. Um, there's, uh, I, and in fact, yeah, this is really like egotistical, but the other feature I'm really excited about is um, the container stuff I've, I've added there. So we, we have uh, Podman, Scorpio, sort of the whole kind of alternative Docker suite of, of stuff there. That That's now in Leap 15.1. Um, besides that, we're quite proud to say that Leap 15.1 is, is it's a somewhat conservative release. I mean, the whole point of Leap is, is you know, you deploy it. If you start with 15, 15.1 should be, you know, pretty much a pointless minor 
upgrade for you. Um, so there, there isn't like huge, massive, world-changing headline features. Um, really, we're you know just keeping everything updated, latest kernel, newer kernels, newer backports, uh, keep, keeping things fresh. Um, yeah, yeah. But, so it's like maintenance, bug fixes, and that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I like how you phrase it says it's a point it's supposed to be pointless point release. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a, well in fact we did talk about actually getting rid of the point because like we think we you know we're basing it on SUSE Linux uh, yeah, SUSE Linux Enterprise 15 service pack one. Like should we just call it like leap fifteen service pack one? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we kept the point one for now. Understandable. So one of the things our listeners are always curious about is the collaboration between the software and the hardware distributors. So can you give us any insight into the relationships that OpenSUSE has with hardware vendors like AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel? How much influence do you have on them in getting things right for Linux? Influence on them, it can, it would, it depends. Um, so, like in the case of AMD, AMD have sponsored us a lot with a lot of hardware for, for our build mm. service. Um, so, you know, they, you know, we have a ton of AMD machines. Um, nice. um, and in fact, if they're listening, we could do with some new ones because they look better. <laughs> uh, but we, us uh, too. if you're listening, us so too. could we. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we, yeah. But they, um, yeah. So, so there's there's that. And of course, we, we you know, they had, when we first got that hardware, you know, there, it was brand new hardware. There was, there were some very interesting Linux bugs there. They were very responsive and helpful with firmwares and stuff. We, we kind of, we, we, yeah, we, we got very close and lucky with that. There's, there's behind the scenes with SUSE, there's also a ton of stuff going on, which you end up seeing reflected in OpenSUSE because SUSE is putting stuff in there with like, they've got NDAs with like Intel and AMD and stuff. So like, it's not surprising. There's a few times when like, like the NDA gets released and like the next day OpenSUSE already has support because it's all mm-hmm. so there's, there's sort of that back channel as well. Um, there's some cases of hardware vendors um, directly working in OpenSUSE. Um, so for example, the ARM, uh, uh, yeah, AR64 version of Tumbleweed and Leap, um, you know, the, the main contributors behind that are all employed by ARM Limited. They're, you know, they're, they're ARM guys, they're, they've, they've got access to, our code base they contribute directly mm-hmm. you know they help test it they help yeah they help with the code base they've given us they helped with the hardware as well um same again for ibm with power so that our power pc uh, port is is you know an exceptionally good quality and big part of that's because a lot of the contributors are working in ibm um so so and then of course that that becomes an instant two-way street you know we're having a bad issue because of something uh, you know with with their stuff and yeah they they're seeing the issue. They're realizing things aren't getting released, and then things work that way. Um, then there's like other smaller hardware vendors, like um, these laptop manufacturers, like Tuxedo, um, sort of the kind of um, equivalent of, of like System76 in Germany. You know, they're they're using Leap as, as sort of a key reference system. They're giving us hardware, and, and we're yeah using that as we're, t- as we're testing Leap and, and the like. So yeah, it's with with a kind of project like OpenSUSE being so open for for hardware vendors, it, it's mm-hmm. one of those easy ones where they can they can just dive in, start using our stuff, start contributing back, um, and it, it's we try and make that as as easy as possible. I mean, right. just following the kernel releases alone, I've seen a huge increase in the amount of vendors that are putting 
updates for their various products within the kernel. Have you, since you've been in this uh, game for a while now, you have to have seen this too. Are you seeing a, a lot of increase in interest from vendors now reaching out uh, to get involved in Linux more than? I, I, I mean, I was I was talking to, to Greg Rohan about this a while back. And, and um, I remember back then it wasn't quite as rosy as it is now. Um, I mean, <laughs> we, were both, we were both saying the same thing of, of like the, the problem back then was the vendors didn't realize that's what they have to do. Like, because if, if they, if they're doing it on their own backs, there's no way they can keep up with the kernel. You know, the kernel's moving too quickly. So if they're doing their own, you know, out of, out of tree drivers and, and, you know, you know, building their own thing against that, but of course it's going to be broken. You know, the, the kernel's moving too quickly and the kernel guys aren't going to care about something that's not in their code base. Whereas if you get the, if the vendor actually engages with the kernel, puts it in there, has it as part of the, the main code base, well, then suddenly, you know, their problems are everybody's problems. So, you know, the community effect immediately kicks in, you know, the various subsystem maintainers, you know, realize, oh, you know, this random storage issue, for example, you know, breaks IDE on PPC. Well, I'm, the storage developer is going to fix that, not wait for the, you know, the, the IBM guy to fix it. So uh, it, it's it's kind of yeah, community contribution 101, but it, it's taken some hardware vendors sort of a, a bit bit of a time to get there. Well, it's interesting because this kind of rolls into my next question a little bit, because obviously SUSE, one of the the unique parts of it is you have Tumbleweed, you have a rolling release version that's constantly going out there. So when the Radeon 7 AMD came out in my case, and I am one of the first ones, I'm a hardware guy, so I get it day one, plug it into my computer. I think I was running Ubuntu at the time or something. And of course it doesn't work because the drivers are, the drivers are baked into the kernel and it has, it's baked into 4.20 plus. So now you have to manually hack your system to get the latest hardware to work. And as somebody who most of the people follow my channel and things, they're new to Linux. They're the ones who are up and coming that are interested going out and saying, yeah, you can run this, but if you're not, but not unless you hack your kernel, if you're on any of these other distros. So I find it very interesting that OpenSUSE went the route of having a rolling release. Obviously this allows vendors like AMD and people who want to use the latest and greatest hardware to always have the advantage of having the latest hardware baked into their kernel right from the start. If I was using OpenSUSE at that time, I would have been able to plug that card in and, and go. Now, some people say rolling release models, wonderful, but they're not stable. So they're not really meant for a prime time machine. A lot of people will say that when it comes to things like Arch. What are your thoughts on rolling release model and how OpenSUSE is different in, in that way? I'm a huge rolling release fanboy. Um, and, Me too. And, yeah, um, and in fact, I, um, yeah, I, I had a pretty big part to play with how tumbleweed now is because you know when um, OpenSUSE had you know, with our weird anarchic way of doing things um, a couple of years back, we basically ended up realizing we'd actually built two rolling releases. You know, we had old tumbleweed, which was originally started by Greg Crowhartman, and that was like a rolling repo that used to live on top of our, our base system. Um, because it was the easiest way of, of doing what he wanted, uh, of, of you know, getting things like a new kernel, a new KDE, et cetera, on top of that. But you have that problem of, you know, static base system and, and rolling thing. You know, there's all these weird interaction issues that, that cause that. And, you know, old Tumbleweed was constantly causing us pain in that area. Um, at this, in parallel, you know, we were trying to make factory our, our development code base, you know, more usable. Because if you're 
development code base isn't usable, your developers don't use it, and then no one's testing it, and then you can't ship a release based on that because it's broken mm. all the time. <laughs> um, so we, we th th that was kind of the, the birth for us is realizing okay, we need to test this, and we, we basically, humans shouldn't be allowed to use this until we know it works. Um, and the, the big, a big team inside OpenSUSE um, started using what's now known as OpenQA um, as a key part of the release process. So OpenQA had been around for a few years beforehand, but we actually kind of literally started gating the release process of factory on OpenQA. So, and, and the way OpenQA works, it's like totally different from like Selenium or a lot of other test systems. Um, it, it, it's like completely API neutral. It, you, it's, we've basically taught a bunch of Perl scripts to act like a human being. So it starts up the operating system, and in fact, in some cases, it's, it's smarter than a human being. But yeah, it's both. Can we uh, can we actually dig a little further into OpenQA? It's it's an interesting innovation, and uh, you know, besides a basic rundown of how it works, can you talk about how it's affected OpenSUSE long term and how it's helped improve the product over time? Oh, totally. Well, yeah, because because we're using it in a way where it, it you know we're Get, we're, we're constantly testing the system the same way the users are going to use it. You know, it's deploying it using the media we're going to deploy with. It, it's installing it using YAS the way they're going to click it. Um, and you know, everything we can handle tons of different variables and tons of different combinations because we just throw it like a whole bunch of different environmental variables at it. And you know, OpenQA is smart enough to realize that means you know, we need a hundred different test scenarios with all these different weird combinations. Um, and it does all of that in parallel across a whole bunch of VMs. So we only ship when we're comfortable with the outcome of all those results. Um, so stuff only gets into tumbleweed when we're comfortable with all those results. But nice. we also, um, that was kind of layer one of, of the amazing part. The, the second part we realized, because we've got our awesome build system, um, is we could basically take a subset of those tests and run them really quick, like CI style, on the submissions going into our build system. So you get every time anybody submits anything to OpenSUSE, um, or in fact also Sleek, because SUSE now used the same internally as SUSE, um, the, the, this small subset of like three or four basic installations that we know we're going to care about get done as part of that submission, and that will actually decide whether or not your submission gets in. So developers get really quick feedback of, okay, I, I, if we merge this, I'm going to break the entire distro. So they don't merge it. It doesn't get in. They fix it really quickly. So, you know, they're more enthused, they're faster, they're, you know, they're more effective as well. Um, and, and so the, the whole quality of the distribution just kind of becomes a sort of almost, almost perpetual motion machine of, of, you know, the you know, developers can, can, I mean, but at the same time, developers can actually be a little bit lazy. I mean, I totally admit now there's, there's some submissions where I used to spend a whole bunch of time testing it before I'd submit. And now I don't have to. I can just do my change, throw it to staging. Staging's going to check it. Um, you know, if, if it gets if it gets in, and like even if it's not quite in that small subset that, that our staging tests do, it's going to get caught again in the the big yeah. the big test at the end. Okay, if it gets caught in the big test at the end, I'm going to have a release manager yelling at me in the morning. Um, but you know, then you know, I know I shouldn't have been quite so blasé about things. But the point being, users don't realize it. They don't notice mm -hmm. it. 
So, you know, it never gets out to the wide world. Um, and, and so tumbleweed is, is constantly at this, this sort of good quality of, of, of usability. And we now use those same techniques and the same methods for testing Leap and inside SUSE for testing the enterprise products. So you've got this kind of constantly raising barb of quality because when something gets missed, because you know, no auto testing is perfect, you know, the question becomes, well, how did we miss this? Then we write a little bit of Perl to make sure we're never going to miss it again. And that becomes a permanent part of the, the test suite further on. So how does that work with, I, I get how it works in software in my head, but how does that work with hardware? For instance, if it, you know, um, AMD releases the new patch into their code, you said they give you hardware as well sometimes to test, um, although they need to send you revamped stuff. Um, but they send you sometimes for you to test on that. Is that is it able to emulate certain cards? To we we do a huge amount of emulations. That's based on on what Kimu can do, and we you know we really stress Kimu out with we we're we're plumbing and poking around parts of that that like no one else does. I think for for a while we were even like emulating an S three ninety on Intel, which was just hilarious. Cause they, <laughs> Um, including a v- one of our developers even wrote like a VGA output driver so we could see what was going on. Like, there's no mainframe with a VGA card, but this one does. Um, we now actually use real hardware for that case. So the nice thing with OpenQA is, is it's got a whole bunch of different backends. Some of those backends include, include remotely accessing mainframes or remotely accessing real hardware over like IPMI or various fancy like KVM devices. Um, we don't use that as much as I'd like. We don't have as much hardware for that kind of stuff as I'd like. Right. Um, but, but we do have some of that. It, it, it gets used really heavily. It does kind of catch that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's, yeah, that, so it's, uh, it works. And yeah, it, yeah, it could work better, um, but it, it's... Now, how does that work with NVIDIA being they, you know, AMD obviously is going the open source route. NVIDIA is notorious for their closed source proprietary drivers. Are you able to do any testing with them or is it pretty much if you're going to use nvidia good luck if you're going to use nvidia good luck although nice. that's the attitude i like it, <laughs> I, and i wouldn't recommend it however things have got a lot better than it used to be so so for tumbleweed users um you know there was a, a lot of pain because um the, effectively there wasn't an official nvidia driver for tumbleweed um, right. and in our case you know we're, we're very gpl centric so we don't ship the nvidia driver you know it's nvidia the to ship it it's on their service yeah so there was sort of coordination issues with that of, of, you know they you know getting them to build it before we shipped it and all that kind of stuff so we've we've smoothened things out with them a bit there so now there is an official tumbleweed driver for nvidia in on the nvidia repos um we do our best to kind of keep those things in sync and, and working um it, it's not perfect but it's a heck of a lot better than it used to be Nice. Well, as as an NVIDIA user, I can testify to the fact that it's now a lot easier to get it to get it working. I literally did a uh, an OpenSUSE um, leap install uh, the other day and, and give that a whirl. And then I thought, no, let's go for the tumbleweed and did that. Popped in the NVIDIA you know repository, worked out which one was for my card and went pop 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 rebooted and bingo, it worked. Yeah. So it's great. Yeah, in, the, in theory, for Leap, it, it, it's, I mean, it, it should be bankable in this because we don't change, because we're using a, a SUSE based kernel, we don't change the, the kernel mm. APIs at all during the release. So th- there shouldn't be anything to ever go wrong there. Yeah, Tumbleweed, when there's a brand new kernel release, that would be like the the period where I might, for an MBD, like recommend like maybe hold off 
doing a zip it up that week. You know, if you've just like mm. Kernel 5 just come out, you know, makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and well, but then if you're a BTFS user, go nuts, have fun, do it, and then just roll back if it goes wrong. Yeah. Or if you're like me and you think, well, I can, I can reinstall it in 20 minutes. Um, Cause I think I noticed that mine went from five point something or other to 5.1, just literally just like yesterday. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Reboot. Yay. We're up. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the re- reinstallation is an option. I, I would recommend rollback because I'm a huge BTFS fan as well. And that's that's just an awesome feature. Extension 4, it's too complicated for me. It's just like, I, I'm, although I've been using Linux for a long time, I am not the technical body, as you'll find out. <laughs> well, one, one, it's a bit buried, but it's actually um, on our bootloader. So when you're booting up Tumbleweed, there's a boot menu option there for like boot to other snapshot. So if something's gone wrong, just boot to the snapshot for like the day before. Yes, and I then it's, it's and then it's one command to roll back in there. It's like just like literally like nice. snapper roll back done. It figures out what you were trying to do and you reboot and you're back to where you were. Oh, I have to give it a and try. In, and in fact, on my my other project I'm working with 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 microOS, we even do that automatically because that's yeah. In the world of containers and read only root file systems, we can make lots of assumptions. Yeah, there's um, another interesting thing about the Open QA thing is that there's these videos that are generated based on what the tests are done. And that's yeah. just like, it's just ridiculously cool to, to watch so the, awesome. the test being done. And I, I was just, just as a side note, I would make suggestions that some people in, in like SUSE do some marketing thing to just, to, to just make a, a, a video expl- like showing off like the open QA benefits of that. Cause that stuff is just pretty cool. Like, it's just like the fact that you can even have gnome load up and do all these testings automatically is just really cool. Yeah, I mean, when, when pretty much every SUSE conference or every conference I go to, um, where if I'm representing SUSE or OpenSUSE, I'm almost certain to have my laptop loaded up with like a whole bunch of those open QA tests. And we just we just like plug my laptop into the booth and just leave that running. And it's like, <laughs> nice. Forget all the corporate snatch slice and elegance, just show them open QA. And, and it, it, it catches people's attention every time. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, also, you have other innovative stuff. Like, there, I mean, I, in my opinion, OpenSUSE and SUSE in general is known for having like these massive infrastructure projects that are just super powerful and really technically like sound. And one of those things is Open Build Service, where like it's it's used for distribution of packages, and you can have uh, a, a developer could use op- the OBS to. Uh, have port packages made for Fedora, Debian, Ubuntu, uh, SUSE, of course, and also like Arch and some variety of other things. Um, it's it's all it's a great idea, but I'm just curious. Uh, one of the things that I've seen as a problem is it's kind of difficult for people who have never used the OBS to get used to it, like to use those packages and install them on the a different distro other than OpenSUSE. Is there any kind of interest in having like a central repo where if someone could install like an OBS source and then search the their their, their uh, terminal to get applications from that? That that kind of thing comes up as a common topic, even actually for OpenSUSE, because everything's kind of split there. Um, it's it's definitely something that's possible to be done with the build service. The 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 trick and the challenge really is um, when you think about it from an engineering perspective, um, and, and this and it's particularly from the way SUSE and OpenSUSE think about building stuff. You know, we are absolute dependency. Um, I'm trying to think of the term now. Fanatics? Fanatics would probably be the good word, yeah. You know, we, we for us, the product isn't right unless it's sort of dependency sent. You know, we, we make sure that, that every package, 
you know, in a single repo, you know, has been built properly and consistently and reproducibly. You know, we've been doing reproducible builds before it was a term. Um, for, you know, in, in that sphere of the product of, or the repo. Um, so the problem you get when you have like a whole bunch of other repos is, of course, well, you know, maybe this repo was built against this code base and this repo was built against this code base. And maybe, you know, this library was slightly different here. Um, and and it, it's just completely antithetical to how we think to, to kind of present all of that as one easy thing because it gives the user an expectation that stuff's all going to work together and it hasn't been built together it hasn't been rebuilt together it, it, so yeah, it, yeah it, it, it makes it harder to do that kind of thing um, but if there was like a community effort for like um, bundling together a whole bunch of stuff um, and, and presenting it sort of consistently for like Fedora users or something um, the OBS will like, totally be able to do that kind of thing and um, we actually do that um, inside SUSE and OpenSUSE. So we have um, Package Hub where we're, we're basically doing that for SLE users. So taking OpenSUSE packages, which typically have been built in you know this develop project or that develop project or in Leap or in Tumbleweed or both or whatever, and then aggregating all of those together in a single repo built specifically for SLE, tested for SLE, and then shipped to SLE. Um, so yeah, that's that would be the way to go with that. Okay. There's mm -hmm. also uh, I remember this um, a talk you gave about how you love app images, and <laughs> that I, I'm curious, like how often is app images utilized in OBS and that kind of thing? Yeah, I hate that quote. <laughs> <laughs> I knew when he started laughing, there was a backstory yeah. to this. Yeah, there's a backstory for that. Okay, so there's a, there's another talk um, from before that one. Uh, you can see it at first demo OSC, um, where basically I I was explaining how my view that you know Flatpak, Snappy, and App Image are basically just reinventing like the Windows 2000 DLL hell nightmare that, that you know anyone who ever used Windows lived through. Um, and my view on that hasn't really changed that much over time. Um, but I always, you know, being a nice guy that I am, you know, always sort of suffix that with, you know, I see where they're trying, these projects are trying to go with that. And like, I'm open to the possibility that they're going to get better. Um, and after I said that, AppImage tried to get better. They worked together with us to like build some of this stuff in OBS. So you have, you know, an, the, the ability for an app, app, app image in OBS to be built, you know, consistently against the code base that it's trying to be, you know, rebuilt when the packages from its base distro require it to be rebuilt. So, you know, if they're fresh app images without stale libraries in and that kind of thing. When they did that, I was very happy. I said I loved them. I still don't like app images. <laughs> you know, I, I like the people for doing that work. Right, you know, right. But I don't like app images. Mm -hmm. Um uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of snaps. Uh, I'm I'm more partial to Flatpak at the moment. Um, it's still not something that I would use myself day to day. I still see the risks and, and the 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 gaps in in understand not understanding the, the the gaps in in problems they've decided to deal with. You know, from from you know, being so for me, we we can, I look at this differently. Can I just ask uh, flat out? I guess what. It, as a as a person who is a large proponent of things like snap package app image and, and flat packs, I guess my question to you would be, what would your answer be to the problem of developer? It's a difficult thing to target Linux as a destination for software development because if you're not if you don't if you set on a distro, you have eighty percent of the community upset with you because you didn't pick their distro. And if you don't pick a distro, there is no real way to universally just target Linux as a whole. So what's the answer to that question, if not universal packaging? Well, universal packaging isn't universal, sadly. 
you know, every 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 universal packaging solution still has that problem. Um, it, it it maybe moves it around a little bit, it maybe shoves it up or down the stack, depending if you're doing flat pack, snappy or whatever. Um, but at some point, there's always going to be an interaction layer, an issue between you know the the the, the application the developer cares about and its dependencies, be they you know some uh, you know runtime in, in Flatpak or the base snap in Snap or you know the random pile of stuff you've thrown in app image. You, you've you've still got to worry about that stuff. Um, and so I don't think any of the those options out there really solve that problem. Um, and when it comes to sort of the best way of, of dealing with that, I, I think my, my personal view, and I know it's not the easiest answer, um, but is you can't think of the Linux ecosystem like, like a monoculture. You know, it's not Windows, it's not Mac. There is no sort of single way of doing that. And even, at, even when you look at Windows and Mac, like Windows and Mac, there's no single way of doing that stuff anyway. Um, the nice thing with Linux compared to those environments is, is with that diversity of distributions, that diversity way of, of doing things, um, developers can quite often if they're thinking about their things properly, target what they want to target. You know, they, they can have their first class citizens that they, they do what they want to do. But the developers I, I really love working with are those who, who've made that decision of, okay, we're targeting, you know, Ubuntu, for example, or Susan or whatever. But they're still open and willing to work with others for that, for those others to then make their thing available on there too. And that that's how you end up with sort of community effects really taking off. You know, because you know, if it means you know, if we if you know, and this, I mean, and this is this is how distros actually evolved in the first place, anyway. You know, no upstream developer ever packaged for a distro. It's distro fanatics and distro maintainers that package for the distro. I I guess I just don't see a time when Microsoft is going to participate in that, and oftentimes their license agreement pro- prohibits other people from repackaging stuff. My understanding, with- I, just to interrupt you, then would it surprise you to tell that we have Microsoft contributors to OpenSUSE? No, not necessarily, because I mean, SUSE is one of the is one of the larger distros, right? But um, you know, Rebecca Black Linux, for example, or you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you pick one. I mean, there's it's just there. Microsoft is not spending here or there trying to package anything for for that distro, and I, I guess my understanding of universal packages, you know, like take Snap Package for for example. I mean, if you have if you have Snap D, then all of the dependencies come down with the uh, with the application, right? So they're all contained in a nice little bundle that comes down to the distro. As long as you happen to be using, for example, the, a, a compatible version of glibc. Because there's an assumption that glibc, for example, is going to be consistent. Well, sure. the way Canonical build glibc is is very very different from how we build glibc. And of course, with Tumbleweed, we move our glibc versions a heck of a lot faster than they do. Um, and so there's been more than one occasion where you know that that house of cards has completely collapsed because you know there, there's flat, there, there's been times when security flags that there's like there's no way in a million years we'd ever turn those flags off, you know, are off on the Canonical one, and that's made snaps just behave really weird on OpenSUSE. And there's been other times like we've just moved we've moved too quickly. Um, and it's yeah, it, so there's always going to be a dependency issue somewhere. Um, these these tools move it around, they don't solve it, sadly. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're not against the idea of a universal package system. You just haven't found one that you feel truly encapsulates everything that you would want to have in a uh, and you said Flatpak's the closest to that right now. Um, it, it's it's the one that I've 
I've found so that well, I've got I've got a couple of projects kind of that I'm thinking about and planning that that might sort of lean on, and I've tried it before in, in the past of like leaning on Flatpak just so for the for the context of that project and have to worry about packaging for a bit, um, and you know, so like for example, have a, a well the micro S desktop, so a read-only root file system, sort of appliance style OpenSUSE desktop, and you know, I don't want to have to worry about installing packages and that thing. So for that, I'm probably going to use Flatpak. See how far that goes. Last time I tried it. One third of them didn't work, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that, yeah, that kind of hurt. You know, that was two years ago now. So see what it's like, and, and yeah, give another shot. Nice, sounds good. So going back to the normal package management um, terminologies, if I can, if I can use that word, um, OpenSUSE utilizes Zip. So what are the what are the advantages of Zip? that it has over apps or Pac-Man or DNF, or do you not see them as advantages, but just a different and better way of doing stuff? Well, compared to apt and Pac-Man, um, the, the main sort of killer feature for us is, is libsolve. So the, the, the dependency solver that we have there, mm -hmm. um, it's so good that DNF adopted libsolve. So I can't say we're better than DNF there because, you know, they're using our code. Um, but the, the way libsolve can handle dependencies and complex sort of multi-repository, multi-package, multi-fulfilling, you know, all these weird and wonderful combinations, it, is, it totally changes a lot of the, the packaging nightmares that, that in sort of plain RPM or plain dev or with apt or whatever, you, you just, that's how you get those nasty loops, that's how you get that nasty mess. Um, you, can, you can really push uh, libsolve to, to ridiculous limits. Like I added the entire OpenSUSE build service, like every repo, and tried to like tell the server, figure out if you can do something. It took a couple of hours, but it figured out it could actually come up with something that would be technically sane. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't actually work, but it would be technically, you know, dependency, dependency complete at least. Um, and that, that, that's magic. That, that, that really, yeah, really changes things. Um, when it comes to regular zipper, um, the, the, the rest of it is, is sort of a, just a nice clean reflection of sort of how we see packages and, and upgrading. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit different from DNF in the sense of we've kind of got this weird hybrid of, of, Bits and pieces work very much like a traditional RPM distro, but then we have features like the zipper distribution upgrade, which is you know, straight out of the, the apt dist upgrade approach. So you can you know, move your entire operating system from you know, distro A to distro B or distro version A to distro version B and just yeah, let the server fix it all. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, it's like kind of best of both worlds mix um, and, and it's constantly evolving. So that helps too. Very nice. I know you mentioned earlier that OpenSUSE utilizes ButterFS and you're a huge fan of it. Um, it offers lots of unique abilities that you mentioned, snapshots, rollbacks. Um, one of the things that you do hear quoted often, and um, I don't know if there's a lot of truth to it or not, because I don't think I've been on it long enough to say or used it in an enterprise-like environment, but people bring up reliability. I think at some point when ButterFS was really early on, some people had lost some data or there were some issues and that seems to be the reputation that's following it. Uh, what do you, what are your thoughts on that reputation as a, as a user of it and what are some of the advantages advantages it has for OpenSUSE? So the, 
the history, I mean, you know, when Butterfest first was released, you know, there was lots of sort of recommended best practices and very few distros kind of followed them. So there was there was sort of BGFS sort of in the wild um, and, and people not necessarily using it in the particularly best way. Um, I like to say, think that SUSE typically, you know, was always on the mostly right side of that, but even we made mistakes and sometimes like shipped it with with default settings and default options that maybe weren't weren't the sanest there. Um, but that's that's kind of very much ancient history now, um, especially in in the SUSE distros. Um, and you know we're doing inside SUSE, we're like the main contributor to BGFS, so you know we've got the experts there, and they know how that stuff all works. The the kind of killer um, bugbear of of mine. Um, when it comes to reliability or data loss or that is with traditional file systems, X3, for example, you know, something goes wrong. What's the first thing you do? You run an FSCK. Um, Interestingly with like XFS and 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 ZFS, you know, people know not to do that. You know, that there's, you know, other ways of recovering it, but with BGFS for some reason, I guess, because it's unlike ZF, it's like it's in the kernel. Um, they assume that that's the same procedure. So something goes wrong with BGFS. What's the first thing people do? They run BGFS check minus minus repair. If you actually read the documentation, it says quite clearly like, this is the last thing you should possibly do. <laughs> um, you know, because BGFS check minus minus repair is known to be potentially disruptive or destructive. Um, because you know, with with the butterfly model of if you've got you know metadata and real data, you know, repair is basically sort of chucking away half of that and just looking at what's physically on the disk. And if what physically on the disk is messed up because your disk is failing, well, then you've just lost all your data. Um, and and that really trips people up. You know, a fair amount of time with ButterFS. Um, I, in OpenSUSE, we we have a lot of documentation advising people what to actually do when something goes wrong. Um, it's sort of, I think it's like a fifteen-step guide now. Uh, the nice part is like you only need the first four steps like ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, um, and BTFS check repair is minus is step fifteen. So like you should <laughs> never ever need it. Um, and and quite often, if you go through those steps, and basically in OpenSUSE we do a lot of those steps as background maintenance tasks quite often anyway. Um, basically just like using the scrub tool and, and yeah, maybe loading the second super block if, if your super block's missing, that kind of thing. It, it'll fix almost all ButterFS issues straight away, get you up and running in, in no time at all. Um, and yeah, it, it's incredibly reliable there. So it, it's, it, I wouldn't say it even, even needs special care or attention. It just needs to be used the way it was designed to use. <laughs> Um, and yeah, the yeah upstream docs pretty much the same reflection for us too. And, and in fact, I think I even did a talk about this at OpenSUSE conference last year, of like a, a lightning talk. Of, yeah, so Very just cool. just to kind of get the message out there because it, it's yeah it, it's perfectly fine. I mean, it's the default in in Slee for heaven's sake and for like five years now. So yeah, SUSE's making money off the. Well, thing. for my but, use uh, case, I mean, I haven't I've been playing with OpenSUSE uh, recently, and uh, all my data is there, so it works from that standpoint. So we're good. Yeah, I don't have any data in my life that isn't on ButterFS right now. Um, yeah. it, it's like e- even even my backup is ButterFS. So it, it's yeah, if something goes wrong there, I'm I'm really screwed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving a little bit sort of that deeper into the installation processes, um, OpenSUSE uses Yast for its installer. And it's invariably the sort of first impression that people are going to get of how it's going to be like working with, with OpenSUSE. Um, and reading the forums and the reviews, some less technical people struggle with the network settings portion. Is there any plans to make this easier with auto detect or was it 
a deliberate decision on your part to say, no, someone's got to let us know what type of network they've got rather than us auto-detecting it. Are these old forum posts? Because if if you're referencing stuff in like 842, mm-hmm. I'd agree totally. Um, because, yeah, we you basically summed up what we used to think about this thing. Um, what we've been doing definitely since Leap 15 um, is changing that approach. Basically, with the way YES is currently working, I really hope it's currently working this way. I should double check. But it's been a really long time since I've actually seen the network with it. So the way I'm pretty sure it's working... The system boots as part of Yast, and it mm-hmm. detects the networking. If the ne- if if it if it has a sensible networking resolution, it will use it for the installation, and you never see the networking screen. It it doesn't pop up. Um, that's definitely true in in some of the sub projects I'm working on, like OpenSUSE and MicroOS and, and Cubic. That I, I I don't ever show the networking screen at all. Um, the user has a chance to modify it at the last mm. step before they do the install if they really want to, but it, I, I don't flag it up. Um, in the regular distros, I'm pretty sure we're following the same kind of approach. Um, something like Wi-Fi cards can, you know, trip that up a little bit, you know, because it's like if the only card you've got is wireless, then you have to pop it up and mm-hmm. wireless. And would, would that be true also of the network install ISO if you like if you download it? It should do the same auto detecting. It project. should do the same auto detecting and all of that. Yeah, it should just work straight out of the box. So I, I know I know that I know that works because we have a test for that in OpenQA. <laughs> so I I think what I noticed is um and this is very uh, one oh one level network stuff, but when you're going through the installer uh, with Wi-Fi cards at the beginning, uh, it will ask you to select, or at least it asked me several times to select whether I wanted DHCP, meaning it wouldn't resolve to an IP until those boxes were checked um, for DHCP or sign a static. And then you click, it found the card, everything was detected, the hardware was loaded, it's all there, it's literally two clicks, and boom, mm-hmm. yes, I want DHCP, connect to the network, Wi-Fi box pops up, you choose your network, you go through um, and, and I think that's probably what uh, was being referenced there. It's not like it's hard, but I, you know how people can get tripped up on things if they're not used to uh, mm. that. So that was more like if you go into other installers, it's, it basically it's all hidden behind the scenes, right? The DHCP is automatically mm. turned on in certain things. And I've done three installs of it. And I think all three did have that pop up, um, uh, pop up there. But it's not a obviously... So there's all like laptops, wireless only. All laptops, yeah, yeah. wireless only. Yeah. No, you see, right. I, I can see how the current logic's getting that confused. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, so I had a, a slightly different experience. I've got my desktop here, um, and the, the resolution was really, really easy. Open up the network section and, and tell it, yeah, use, please use DHCP. And then when I clicked OK, it went away and everything was, was, was lovely. So Leap and Tumbleweed both asked me those questions, which is why it prompted why didn't it do that automatically? So I might have another go whilst I'm trying out ButterFS as well and see if it does it a third time. It might be just my machine that's... Now, yeah, that, but if you do, please file a bug because that, mm. that, that's the kind of thing our YAS team would love to get their teeth into because we, we have tests for, for that kind of scenario, like desktop with a wired, wired connection. Mm-hmm. In OpenQA, we never see the network screen there. Um, so you know, maybe you have something slightly weird and wonderful in your, your network setup. Um, one, one, thing I, the- one thing I can think of that, that might trip it up is, is like if you've got IPv4 at home with badly configured IPv6, um, because we've really mm. tried to do both stacks by default, and if yeah, if if one of them's be- being weird, I can just see Yas going, okay, I'm I'm going to give up. Yeah, well, that that might in fact be it because although BT 
have um, IPv6, you can't use it anywhere. It just doesn't work because of the, the BT router. And there's no way of configuring it so it works properly. So it could well just be that because I'm BT. Yeah, it could be. But in which case, file a bug. We've got uh, cool tooling, um, which like saves like all the logs from Yast. Mm -hmm. um, you can just kind of dump that into the, the bug report and the Yast team will figure out everything that was going on behind the scenes. I love that you cool. said to open a bug on that because sometimes, Deb, I look at some of this stuff and I'm like, well, it's just easy. You click a button and you go by. But what I'm thinking about is the users, right, mm. that are brand new. This is their first time trying Linux. They're going to sit at that screen yeah. In there, but I feel like if they see my name attached to it, they're gonna be like, Look at this dumb DOS geek following a bug on the <laughs> box he has to click. But now I can tell them Richard Brown told me to do so, so I'm good. I, I feel good now, yeah. Yeah, now there's yeah. yeah, all of our teams this season, we're, we're, we're yeah, you know, we that we need those bugs, we need to know what people want, and you know, we'll, we'll do our best to get around to it. All right, awesome. So let's go switch gears a little bit to a completely unrelated topic. That's uh, I'm just curious because it's, there's been a lot of talk in the like the mobile mm -hmm. space for vendors like Pine and Librem, especially like Pine because they're working with uh, they're not, they're building the hardware, but they're not building the software like the operating system. They're working with other vendors to do that. Are there any plans for OpenSUSE to target mobile hardware space? Not that I know of, but with a kind of project where I don't have to know about it. So, um, you know, if, if somebody wants to do it, you know, we'll, we'll do it. You know, that that's, you know, we're definitely, you know, happy to experiment with that kind of thing. We've, we've had, we've dipped our toe in that water before in the past with stuff like uh, Migo and the Moblin, um, you know, way back when. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, I just definitely sort of no objections or, or anything blocking that um but it's not something that that i i know of any kind of active participation or, or movement on at the moment that's, that's interesting anyway just just the uh, being open to it is, is just because like uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people distros would just like pick a certain avenue and just go with that so just to being open yeah. to it in general yeah, the whole time i was saying please say yes please say yes please say yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're not we're not that kind of project like we we don't we you know we really are driven by our, our, our contributors. So, so you know, there's, the, you know, I can tell you what we're currently doing. I can tell you what we're thinking about doing mostly, but you know, anybody can just pick up what they want and do it as part of OpenSUSE. Um, it, it's one reason why I think we don't have many like OpenSUSE forks because like literally every time I, I can think of where there's been like a group of people wanting to take OpenSUSE in like their own direction with a fork, like we end up just chatting with them and we're like, well, you can do all of that in OpenSUSE. So, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. There needs to be a lot more of that. Yeah. So now let's dig into some of your uh, geekiness for a minute. You've got yourself a brand new computer and you've installed OpenSUSE GNOME. Yep. So what are some of your must-have programs that you think, right, I've got to get this, 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 and this, this before I can move on? Oh, I, my, my geekiness has gone to a, a slightly transcendent level. I can't actually tell you that list anymore because it's all on GitHub because I do everything with salt. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a, a salt profile, which I've, which I, I, I've been using now for four or five years. Um, and in fact, has other contributors to it. So even other people have sent me pull requests and they decided what I'm installing on my machine. <laughs> 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 um, which is kind of fun. Um, and that those, so, that salt template gets run 
um, all the time, constantly. That that sets up my gnome the way I like it. Adds all adds all of the stuff um, there and keeps everything on a level. So, um, yeah, it's it's evolved over time. I mean, the the, the biggest one of the, the newest thing to there, I think, is is Ghostwriter for for um, which I'm using that as my my uh, markdown editor and the mm -hmm. like. I guess the best thing about that is, as you find a new program you want to use, you just go and add it to this thing, so you don't have to remember every time. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just 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 dump I just dump it in there. And I've, I mean, it, it's the 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 thing's got a little bit more complicated now because I'm not just using it for like my laptop to my desktop, but I've also got my servers on there, and in fact, all my home infrastructure's there. So you can even see how my backups are set up on that on, on in that Git repo. No passwords, luckily. They're all that's why. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so yeah, all all of that's just just smoothly automated, and then I I get to forget about it, which is kind of nice. So with GNOME, do you use extensions at all? Uh, not anymore, no. So for, for a while, I was actually packaging extensions for OpenSUSE. Um, and, and that was kind of one of those very OpenSUSE things of like, I was grumpy with what GNOME were doing. And so I was like, okay, I'll just package the extension. I'll just make that the default for everybody in OpenSUSE. Um, <laughs> and then I don't have to buy it. Yeah, that's before I was using Salt. So I could just, it was, yeah, I make it the default for everybody that I don't have to remember then either. Um, but packaging those extensions after a while got annoying. Um, plus GNOME stopped doing the stupid stuff and actually put the features back in. Um, and, and so I don't need an extension for pretty much anything anymore. Wow. Interesting. That's the second person, Michael, we've heard that uses vanilla GNOME without extensions, which is shocking to me, but I, it obviously oh, works. No, that, that's true. There's, there's, no, I do have one, which is the, the kind of um, tiling fanciness. So I can have, like, especially on this, this machine, I've got, I've got a, a big 4K screen of like 47 inches. So I yeah. don't have two monitors anymore. Yeah, I think it's shell tile is the one I'm, I'm going for. Oh. So I can, I can like snap the top left, snap the bottom oh, left, nice. right, yeah. and get, get the whole kind of split screen and stuff yeah. there. That's the only extension I have right now. But I, I, I think it, for, uh, yeah, when 3.32 came out, it broke for like two days. So I didn't notice because the upstream one actually handles most of the stuff now anyway. <laughs> I did the same thing about the whole using extensions and then like maintaining extensions. And then there's just so much of an annoyance of doing that. It's just like, nah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, also now just the vanilla upstream one. So pulling the extensions straight from extensions gnome.org got a whole lot better. Cause like one of the reasons we used to have to package the thing in the distro was like the, the upstream ones were like hard pinned to the upstream releases. Mm -hmm. So like a new gnome release comes out and every extension yep. didn't work because it hadn't been flagged to work with the new release. So we were packaging the old extension and just ripping that out. So flag that it would work on the new one. Um, Gnome fixed that a couple of years ago. Um, I remember being in the meetings and yelling at them about it. Um, and, if, <laughs> oh, and in fact, I was in the meetings and then we dragged Sousa into the meetings and made Sousa say the same thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was annoying them too for the Slee side of things. Um, so yeah, it was a it, yeah, nice collaboration story there. And yeah, that, that, that got that fixed where things are more liberal now. It, it, it does occasionally break because of that, but it breaks way less than the old way of yeah, the old way was literally everything broke every single release. Like, yeah. So it's 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 nice that they don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What kind of help does OpenSUSE need from the community right now, and how can they get more information on contributing? Oh, that's a good question. Help. I mean, we're, we're always open for help anywhere and anything, um, which is kind of – which we know causes the problem because you have, like, decision – uh, paralysis at that point. Um, I, I would say the one of the, the areas we could do with most help at the moment is um, actually in, in GNOME, 
Um, you know, we uh, a lot of us old school known packages have you know moved on to other parts of the project and doing other stuff too. And, and we're you know we're having a slightly harder time than we used to kind of juggling that beast. So if you're interested in in packaging gnome, you know, join the gnome IRC channel and our gnome uh, mailing lists, and, and more than happy to sort of mentor people to to bring them up with with that so, you know, sort of yeah old school packaging and and, and the like. Um, we have a, a growing sort of artwork and, and polish community in, in OpenSUSE who like they're the ones who've you've done a lot of the the, the, the magic you're seeing in, in Yast now and the, nice. the wallpapers and, and that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, most of them live on the OpenSUSE Discord channel. Um, you can find them there. You know, but if you're so interested in the kind of artwork design side of things, that there's there's a ton of interesting stuff going there. Um, and I, I think they could do with yeah, always do with, with yeah, more help and, and enthusiasm. And then anything else that kind of takes anybody's fancy. Like we're, we really are one of those projects where if you've got some annoying little pain point that's sitting there in the distro or the project or any part of the project, um, don't assume that we intended it to be that way. You know, it, it's it, it's there to change, you know, so yeah, you know, it's, I mean, I've been I've been this heavily involved in OpenSUSE now for like ten years. The project is totally different from when it's when when I started there. And um, yeah, or another one I can just think of because I'm going to be talking about it a lot the next couple of days. Anybody who knows anything about foundations and uh, sort of independent modes of governance, because it's something we're, we're thinking um, inside OpenSUSE uh, of having sort of a, an independent OpenSUSE legal entity um, or being part of some larger umbrella um, and yeah, have people with experience with that, could, yeah, get in touch with the board. We could do with their advice. Very nice. Um, so we, we have, uh, we've had a lot of questions for you, but we we're kind of leaving off one of the, one of the most important questions that we'd like to ask everybody who comes on our show. Are you a gamer? And if so, what games do you play? <laughs> I, I am. Um, of course and, he is. Look at the chair he has. Yeah, Anybody that has one of those chairs is a gamer. The second he came in and I saw that, I was like, gamer. Yeah, but I, 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 we, we wanted to like introduce the, the idea to give, give him the floor, and then you just had to interrupt I know, but I was so excited to see him have that gaming <laughs> when chair. When one gamer comes across part. another gamer, they can't help but that, kind of. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, had to, I had to clip off the head, the, the head tracker that I'm using for my flight sims. So yeah, um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't game as often as I used to, but uh, when I do, um, I, I'm a big fan of Elite Dangerous, which I admit I have a Windows installation for, but I haven't got it working properly in Linux yet. Um, and the other one that, that, that takes up way too much of time is, is Civilization VI lately. I've just been nice. like, living daylights out of that. Um, but my, my Steam installations, I've got tons of games in Steam that, that yeah, I occasionally get around to, but it's sort of this yeah, weird mix of, of strategy and space at the moment, I, I'd say. Nice. So every once in a while we get together and do a game. So we're going to have to invite you one of these times you're not traveling to come game with us. But I got to tell you, just for the experience of watching Noah game is worth it because he's not a gamer and this is his first time. So every time he does anything, he shouts and screams like a five-year-old is so super excited. Listen, I was saying ever because it just makes the game feel I Listen, feel like golf with friends. I put anybody that plays that game to shame. I was so good, and I'd never <laughs> even touched it before. And I was like, "Boom, hole in one." Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> it it's all so angles, I guess. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Um, you know, thank you for going through the gauntlet of questions that we have here. I've got one more for you. Um, and the good news is, when you come back, you never have to do the gauntlet again. It's kind of like a hazing that we do for any new guests here. <laughs> so the next time we get to just uh, touch in, touch in on uh, what's going on with the latest updates. But speaking of that, what are some things we can expect to see from OpenSUSE uh, in the near future? What are some things to get people excited about? 
I'd, I'd say the the some of the, one of the things that I'm most excited about is what we're doing in the kind of container and Kubernetes and um, uh, single purpose operating system space. Um, so we, we've got this this thing called MicroOS, which you can't really read much about online yet because I haven't made the website. Um, where basically we've taken Tumbleweed and optimized it for let's say single purpose installation. So the idea, you know, if you think about systems these days, like a lot of OSs spend a whole bunch of time, you know, with their patching tool, with their installation tool. So the assumption being this machine's going to be used for like three or four things. You know, it's going to be a desktop and a server. It's going to be a web server and a mail server and database server right. all at the same time. And that has a whole bunch of, of complexity and causes means we can't make a whole bunch of assumptions about that system. Um, but in reality, in like cloud and containers and you know VMs and, and lots of people real world deployments, like these that, that's not true anymore. People are like installing an operating system and that installation does just one job. And when they want another machine to do something else, they just install that again and that does a different job. So we've been kind of asking the question, like, what makes the perfect operating system for that world? Um, and and we've, we've got MicroOS doing that based on Tumbleweed, ButterFS, but we're doing it differently. Uh, transactional updates or atomic updates, I guess I can say, because Red Hat aren't using atomic as much as a term all the time now, um, where you know, you, you're effective. Like we've basically like flipped the snapshotting thing. So instead of touching the running system, we don't. We create a new snapshot, we patch the snapshot, and then you boot into that. Like um, yeah. So you've got like a really nice uh, model there for running like a container host or possibly IoT, or like, I'm going to hack around with the desktop as an idea there. And, and that, that really can change what we're, what we're doing there and how we're doing it. And you can, you can download the images now. They're already there running. But um, yeah, I can see us kind of pushing or experimenting more in that direction as time goes on. And alongside that, containers, containers, containers. We've got the build service now that can build <laughs> containers. It's awesome. So you, yeah, every, all the stuff we're doing with, with packaging, you can do the same thing in containers. We host the containers. It's all in a registry. It's all signed. Um, and and that, that's kind of fun because like the biggest thing that pisses me off with containers, pardon my French, um, is that you know, they're always stale. And that's not yeah. true with OpenSUSE containers. You know, a new package happens in distro, whatever that you're using as the base for your container, then OBS automatically will rebuild the container again. So you have fresh containers because the package changed somewhere down the stack. Um, so that kind of really makes your life a lot easier. Right. Uh, but before we uh, transition away, I do have like a, an extra question. I was curious. Um, is there any plans to bring back SUSE Studio? No, because we don't need it because it's already part of the open build service. Okay. So we, we took a lot of the code of, of SUSE Studio, or actually rewrote it because the code was proprietary for old SUSE Studio. Um, and yeah, that's now part of the open build service code. It's there. So in fact, you can, um, if you log into OBS right now, there's a create image button like right on the front page. And if you click on that, you'll see the UI was like really similar to what used to be in studio yes. and the workflow is really similar. Um, but the fun thing is also actually way more flexible because it's just doing stuff in the open source tooling in the back end. So you can actually hack around with the XML and do stuff that you never could do in studio before. Nice. Excellent. Well, Richard, we've reached the end and we really can't thank you enough for taking yeah. the time uh, to talk to us today. It's been really awesome. Um, and we also want to thank you not only for the many contributions you've made to the OpenSUSE community, 
but the entire open source, the entire open source community, because it sounds like you've been at it a, a lot and you've, you've, you've just contributed in so many different areas. So thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you. I feel old now. <laughs> so a big thank you to each and every one of you for watching, listening to Destination Linux, however you do it. Thank you so much for your support. We love our patrons and coffee supporters. So I just want to give a special shout out to all of you who support this show. We do a live show for patrons. So come join us. If you want to be a part of the show, you can join for just $1. And that's darn near free. That's right. You can also join us on coffee as a way to support the show. Coffee offers a nice monthly option that will let you have the same perks as patrons, even if you're as Patreon, even if you're not a patron of Patreon. If you're a patron, if you're a patron of coffee, there'll be a link to the show notes on how you can join Perfect. on the coffee's website. Perks include things like live access to the show, unedited versions of the show, as well as our most sincere gratitude for being a patron of Kofi. You know, he's never going to stop trolling. He's, that no, he's not, he's not going to stop. Not, I, he's I also not that. wrong. I, I love it. You're just I like, gave in. I gave no, in. I'm like, no, all right. I love it. It cracks me up every week when I listen back to the show. So please get back to us. And let us know what you think or ask any burning questions via numerous methods. Email, you can do at comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and other ways that you can find us are on our website at destination destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. Please keep the comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear ways we might be able to improve the show. Yeah, and if, if you want, the content doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels that you can check out. So you can check out uh, Ryan's channel by going to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where you find yeah. where he will fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. Zeb, you can find his top content at youtube.com slash zebdyboss. You can, you can find him driving in Spain speeds and moving side caravans on his streams. <laughs> and you can uh, check out my content at tuxdigital.com, where I do in-depth weekly uh, GNU's podcast, uh, This Week and Linux, and uh, also other Linux-related content. And specifically, I assume Noah did this, but he modified what I was supposed to say and tried <laughs> to make me say This Week in Windows Dual Booting and other <laughs> Mac-related content. Not going to happen. I... This Week in Windows Dual Booting. Please make that a thing. So Michael. no, no, I'm not. Uh, anyway, you can check out Noah if you must. You can check out <laughs> Noah's content at asknoahshow.com, where he hosts a talk radio show every every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, where he takes uh, Linux questions and business business questions. You can ask him whatever you want, and also why he insists on making a Windows dual booting podcast. But apparently, he does want that. Uh, but anyway, you can uh, be sure to <laughs> I just like. Want to help all the Windows dual booters come over to Linux, man? That's all I'm. Okay, that's, that's fair. Do. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So also remember to like that smash button and share the show on social media. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey to self is only 24 days away. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> <laughs>